This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neo Modern, and grumpy old man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Ruben. Hey, Suzanne. How you doing? Good morning. Good. It's good morning. How are you this morning? Hi. It's like a Hallows, Halloween it, Eve Eve. It is. Hallows Eve. You know, it's getting <laughs> it's getting uh, chippy, Tri- chippy. Tri- uh, it's getting frosty. Trippy. Oh, <laughs> chilly. Sure. I was like, I'm not actually sure where you're going with that. I don't even know what I meant by that. It's getting frosty here, and uh, uh, like I'm, and the leaves have continued falling. I think you got here. Um, uh, so everyone, if you weren't paying attention to where we are in our story, Suzanne was here last week and we had an amazing week. It was fun. We did that episode and hiked up in the mountains. I think you were here at peak uh, leaf turning color time. Peak gold, the peak golden hour. Yeah. yeah peak golden it was. Day. <laughs> well, been, well, so my sister came right after you left and uh-huh. uh, we also went up to the mountain to check out the leaves and it definitely was over the over the top and now it's uh, yeah. starting to drop off and all the leaves on the aspen out in the yard uh that's sort of half fallen off so it's like i will i'm glad i was there when nailed, i was there then it was so perfect nailed the weekend uh, <laughs> to be visiting santa fe um so that was great and then there were some open studios we did which i was glad to see that santa fe had and and your friend's uh, fabric art was beautiful. Who, what's her Emily name? Emily Edson. Emily Edson. Yes. Um, she's a, kind of like a mixed media artist. And I mean, honestly, I have to sort of give her credit for getting me there that weekend, because if it wasn't for the open galleries, I think I probably would have come pushed, later and then I would have missed pushed, the, peak yeah, golden, totally. the peak golden leaves. So totally. I'm, I'm quite happy. And I would go back to, you know, I've been trying to pick out sort of pictures of the week. I mean, everybody... And his mother has been posting leaves turning, leave color turning things <laughs> over the country. You could plot it in a graph and you'd see the sort of the waves of temperature probably crossing the country. But it's been a, uh, and you can't just keep posting beautiful pictures. At some point, even the most beautiful pictures of leaves turning are just boring, boring pictures of leaves turning. You just, I think you hit a saturation point. You have to like save them for next year or like a memory in an off season or something. You have to kind of keep that content and then, you know, feed it out later. Well, I think that that speaks to that general feeling that like, you know, the pictures have to be more than just a picture of something pretty, you know, and that's, and the leaves turning is very much the, almost the very definition of a beautiful scene. And <laughs> you go out and you just can have so much beauty that it stops being beautiful. You know, you yeah. need more, you need story, you need some sort of dynamic or some curiosity about what's going on. Just the the image of something beautiful uh, starts to wear thin for me. I can't, I can't do it. Reason to keep looking, I think. Um, keep trying. Yeah. We actually, we actually have a guest on today's show that I'm really excited to, uh, to talk to Janet Sternberg. Um, and I actually, I, I keep finding a reason to keep looking at her pictures. It's like, I feel like there's, there's a beautiful like simplicity in them, but I keep, I just, I want to keep looking. I want to find more. Um, and I, I can't, actually can't wait to talk to her. 
Let's do it. Well, I can do a a really quick blurb and then have her kind of expound upon that if that works. I always like being introduced personally. So uh, Janet Sternberg is a polymath and artist of photography, a writer of literary books and a maker of theater and films. She is also an educator, which I really respect. And I feel like you just learn so much from teaching students and and what they come back with. I think, Ruben, you really identify with that. Um, She's been shown in New York, Los Angeles, Berlin, Mexico, Seoul, Milan, and Bombay. So um, I am so excited to hear all about her work. Welcome, Janet. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you, both of you. That's so cool. And you're in Los Angeles now, not I am. or uh, Oh, no, 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 no. Los Angeles, where the leaves do not turn until December. And then it surprises <laughs> everybody because it really is a turning, but no, not now. I never really think of LA as having seasons, but I guess there's the sort of the warm season and then the cooler season. The rainy season. The rainy season. <laughs> well, there's definitely that, but there's actually starting in between November and March. It's so beautiful. In the other times of the year, there are all these things you could say about too hot or Santa Ana winds, whatever, but there's the season to use your word of beauty when the Santa Ana winds blow through, everything is crystal clear, the light in that famous golden hour of California. So I'm looking forward, hasn't happened yet. I remember when I moved to Los Angeles, I didn't know there were mountains. Like it was, uh, it was, I was in Pasadena and um, the, it was like so foggy and hazy and actually just a little south of Pasadena, but all the time. All the time. And then it was like, it was like two, I'd been there for two days and then the rain came through and then everything opened up and I just, I was, I was blown away by, where were those, where were those guys? Mountains, also ocean. (laughs) I was in, I was in Beachwood Canyon and I remember, I, I don't know how many years I was there before one day it was actually clear and I looked and I was like, I have an ocean view. It's, like, <laughs> it's right out there. The mountains are here. Yeah. You totally forget where you are in Los Angeles because you don't. This is true. I did when I moved here many years ago now. Where did you move from? New York City, okay. Manhattan. And I always assumed I would be coming back. And that's a whole other story that that was not the case. But one of the things I said to myself was, I think I can't go back because I now have mountains in my eyes. Oh, what a lovely saying. I get that. (laughs) Well, it's true. After a while, you do get used to seeing them down the street from where I am at the far end uh, as one range. And uh, they become part of the landscape, although you're right. There are times they're obscured. So have you uh, have you always been a photographer? Well, I guess no one's born a photographer, but have you been a photographer since you were a she kid? She came out with a camera. What, what got you to pick up a camera? Like how okay, did that, that That's a bit of a story. The simple answer to that is no. Um, no, on the contrary. I think it, I could pretty much say I was always a writer. My mother used to say that my first word was book, and there's no way to verify that, but given my subsequent life, makes sense. And pretty much I've always written. I've written books. I've written uh, well-published books. I've written well-produced plays and films, etc. Then in 1998, I had finished one book. It was called, is called Phantom Limb. It took me 10 years to write, um, which is a very long time. I was doing other things as well, but 
I really wanted it to be right. The way yeah. you know when something is right, kind of a click. And until it happened, I wasn't done. But then I looked up and because the book had been set in the past, I saw that I really was not seeing the present, what was around me. Around that point, knowing that that was something I didn't want to lose, I went to my second home, which is in Mexico, and where we have a house. I um, made a plan for myself. Uh, and so we are now talking about a midlife photographer then. The plan was to have no plan, mm -hmm. to get up in the morning, look around, read a little bit, go for a walk with no destination, no plan, nothing about a photograph in mind. At which point, it's along the way, I saw something. And something in me said, I want to take a photograph. It was an astonishing moment because I certainly didn't have a camera with me. And I went to the town square, which then did not have anything but a disposable camera, a throwaway, AKA a single use camera. Wow. And I went back, stood in front of the window, took the picture, kind of thought that was that. And then do you remember the days when we would have photographs developed and you would wait for this to see them? Yes, yeah. I, yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, I waited to see this one and I had a surprise. One, it was very beautiful and I didn't know that, but as it happens, it's now in the permanent collection of the USC University of Southern California Fisher Museum of Art. So with wow. the first one, I, I kind of struck gold, but I struck even something better than gold. You can fill that in. Uh, <laughs> that was when I looked at the photograph, I saw something that I had not thought I had taken. And it was a photograph of a window all on one plane so that, a, well, I'll go back if you'd like to the particular assets the liabilities that are assets in the disposable. But at that point, I looked and I saw just an arm and the head of a man, upper left. He was on a rooftop. It looked as though he were hammering, and I had not known I had taken it. At that moment, I understood something about the disposable. This was a really ca kind of catalyzed your, your rebirth as a photographer, was this, this moment? Yes. Yes, but no, not the moment. The moment was when I saw the picture, not the taking. And the reason is I began to see what became a practice. And that is the disposable has no depth of field. And it also has only automatic focus. And because I started later and had made films and published books and all, I, I didn't have any rules in my mind about photography. All I had was the knowledge I'd done a number of things and they'd worked out. So, well, a disposable, well, that's interesting. And I know I couldn't focus, but then I discovered, <coughs> excuse me, then I discovered that um, if you cannot focus, you cannot do what is often the case in the more usual photography. And in fact, say, I like this and it's sharp. 
And I don't like that in effect. And it's blurry with the disposable because there's no depth of field, everything appears on one plane. And in mm -hmm. this case, the man who was hammering on the roof, who was behind me, looks as though he's part of the photograph. He's all on one plane. There is blur, which I loved instantly. I happen to think that razor sharpness is kind of, well, I call it focus fetish, and that everything was interpenetrating. And that was the start of a way of seeing that I think has become essential to my practice, although I've changed somewhat. That's also true of, um, of smartphone cameras and iPhone cameras. They have, uh, they're like pinhole cameras. Everything's in focus. There's not a depth of field or, I mean, unless- You, you know, I use an iPhone quickly. now. Everything I've done for the last, oh, I don't know how many years. Well, I can tell you how many years in effect is when you couldn't get things developed because they were optical. You remember that. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to get them printed. So I turned to digital hoping that I could get what I had got in the past. Again, it's not what my new book is at all. So we could talk about that because there has been a development. Although I still believe in the idea that the world interpenetrates and that the mind does that, and we don't always have to do it in images. But in any case, I worried, would I be able to? And it's a way of seeing. I did get what I wanted. I'd like to hear more about what you just said. The mind doesn't make sharp borders, sharp boundaries. We need to have them to be able to walk through the world. We need to have doors so that we know what's inside and what's outside. And we need to pick up this and to know it's solid. But in my photographs, which are much more about the way our mind works, we don't have those borders. There's a sense of the world as porous. And as it happens, I, I did for something else, study some neurology, and I did learn that the inside-outside solid fluid um, are things that our mind makes for us as we move through the world. But our consciousness, which is maybe a better way of putting it, doesn't need to make it. So I'm not claiming that these are images of consciousness. I'm just saying they're different from what you might ordinarily see. So this is how you started out. Right. And, and how, have you, how have you evolved from that moment? Like what's happened? Oh, well, are you talking about in the work or in the world? A lot happened in both. But in the world, a friend of mine uses a great phrase. I fell up the stairs because uh, a couple of years later, I showed some work to somebody I had known in the past just to say, hey, am I on the right track? And he did a thing I've never seen before and haven't seen since. This is Michael Hoffman, who is the founder of Aperture. He, and also the curator at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And he took about the, I don't know, five or six photos that I brought with me. And he started moving them, like three card Monte or something on his desk. <laughs> and suddenly they looked completely different. I yes. saw relationships I'd never seen before. And Michael said, I want them for Aperture. So two years in, I had a portfolio there. 
And I made a decision that I was in effect too old. It wasn't that old then, um, <laughs> but that I didn't want to go chasing after things. I would let things happen organically. And they did. Somebody saw the work, uh, then the president of the Seoul Institute of the Arts in Korea, and he was building an arts and media building there. And it was uh, designed, he was the architect, but he worked very closely to have something that was multidimensional. And he saw multidimensionality in my work and he invited me to do a full building installation for the opening, the inauguration of the building. And that was totally thrilling. So also- What was that like? I mean, like how you're, you're sort of charged with something that you've never done before or attempted. And like how was you would, I like to say things have a vomit factor. <laughs> like, oh, it's it's so exciting. I'm nervous about it. Like I'm, a, you, you almost kind of want to puke a little bit, but like, does that, uh, Ruben's cracking up, but is that like, how did you deal with that? How did you deal with that opportunity? And were you nervous? Were you just excited? Were you just, you know, or just fully confident? Like, yes, I'm going to do this and not, not nervous at all. Ever fully confident. That does not, that doesn't belong to any of us who tried to make work. <laughs> true. That is very true. That said, um, I think the times that I'm not confident are like maybe before I'm going to do public speaking. I gave a talk last week for the Photographic Arts Council that's housed here in LA. And I recognize this is familiar, I'm nervous. And years ago for 10 years in New York, I was the director of something called Writers in Performance at the Manhattan Theater Club. And I had to introduce all of the evenings that I presented. And I would go off and ladies room have some chocolate beforehand because I was nervous. However, when it came to photography, something just happened. I, I think it's kind of magic. I just, I, I knew what I was doing. I found my voice right away. Um, Sometimes I worried, you know, I was going back and forth um, online with Korea and they would send me drawings and sketches and not sketches really, um, sort of like CAD, CAD architectural things. And I thought, well, do I know how to do this, how to trend? But you know what? Mm -hmm. You learn. I had a very steep learning curve, but I like to learn and I'm self-taught. Everything happened very quickly. That was I think 2000, and, well, I started in 98. I think that was 2003. I think. Oh, wow. Okay. 2002. So, uh, and everything followed that pattern of things happening and my doing them. So, of course, things build. And, um, and they did. So, uh, you tell me, you were in, in Mexico. You were living in your second home. You were trying to take a, a bit of like a... Um, a garden life is, is an expression I just learned the other day, which I like, um, but that you were sort of taking time to sort of see what was your next act. You came across this window and it sort of changed you in a way that you didn't start, that you didn't anticipate, that you started to see things differently. And then you started taking photos. Two years later, you're working on this installation in Seoul. You moved back to the U.S. or were you still in Mexico? Oh, no, no, no. Um, when I was in Mexico, just to go back to something you said, 
I really wasn't looking. That was the point. I wasn't looking to do anything except regain a sense of something I've loved to do all my life. And that is seeing life in the present because the book had been said in the past, the book that I had finished. And so in order to see what was around, see with the way, and I don't know, anybody, someone who loves to see, I don't mean just literally see with vision or glasses. No, I mean see. In order to do that, I had to have no goal. I suspended myself. I walked without any destination. And that is when I saw something after maybe a week or so. So tell me, the upshot of the question was, remind me. I just wanted to get back to your story. I, you, have, you have such incredible experience and it's, it is amazing to hear everything that you have accomplished, but I kind of wanted to hear more about the stories behind it. Like you were, you know, you were in Mexico and then did you, you're obviously in Los Angeles now, like you moved to Los Angeles from New York. Like I, I, what, is, what is the life path that sort of is behind these photos and how does that affect um, your work? I can see the work has changed dramatically from that first photo um, to, to kind of what's in your book now. And so I just, I'd love to hear more about it. Well, we're, if we're talking biography, I can tell you I was born in Boston. And I uh, fundamentally, as soon as I could, I got on a bus and went to New York City because something in me knew that then, which was the 60s, late 60s, life was the way I wanted it, the way I had imagined it, the way I had hoped for. And that was the case as it happened. And I was there for so many years and so much of my life was involved with New York. I mean, my jobs, day jobs, but they were serious jobs. New York Council for the Humanities, Manhattan Theater Club. I mean, they all had the word New York in some way in them. And uh, my friends used to kid me that when the ship of New York goes down, mine would be the last hand waving. But it wasn't, but it wasn't. Shall I go on and tell you what happened and why it wasn't? And because there was this change. Please, please okay. continue. <laughs> Briefly, sure, pleasure, pleasure. I just don't want to go on and on. You have whatever time you need. But what did happen is that uh, I'd been in New York for 25 years. I had loved it profoundly as in wanting to kiss the ground when I got back, so to speak. Suddenly something not unlike what I've been telling you about was starting to happen. I couldn't see the city anymore. As I think I've indicated, I love to see. I, that, that just turns me on in life. And also I got very sick and I learned with cancer then, I'm alive now many years later, so let that go. But the more important point was that New York is a very hard place to be when you have to earn your living, which I did, and go through serious illness. So I was starting to become disenchanted when my husband, although not yet my husband, came home and said, I've been asked to try out to be the president of California Institute of the Arts or as it's popularly known, CalArts. Wow, and, that's so cool. Oh, and I said, yeah, let's go for it. So that's great. That's, the, that's what brought you West. That's what brought us West, absolutely. It was very hard at first because I 
you know, I had a whole life there back in New York and I was, uh, you know, the spouse suddenly, although I was doing all my other jobs, which was crazy. Mm -hmm. I recommend anybody who's listening, do not try to be everything and do everything. I was uh, consulting with the Rockefeller Foundation for their film program. I was teaching. I had a new book contract. I won't go on. It was a mistake. However, a lot happened out of that. Mm -hmm. Be that as it may. Um, and then a little, well, actually I had a wonderful moment. It was about four years in, so it took a while. I went to a dance performance and was introduced to somebody I did not know. And that person, I thought, gee, I like the way she looks. She could be a friend. She walked away, turned around, and she said, are you the same Janet Sternberg of the writer on her work? Which was my first book and has been in print for 40 years. Wow. I was known, I was understood for who I was. And it's exciting. A whole other way to love Los Angeles. So, is she a friend? Is she still a friend? Uh, At this moment, no longer, but we were for many years. Oh, lovely. I want to focus on the pictures. Um, your, Your biography is interesting, but I want to concentrate on what you were seeing when you first started taking pictures and how that has changed. Like, how would you describe your photography? If someone isn't looking at your pictures, how would you describe your photography? Well, let me tell you instead what I tend to look for. Um, I'm very attracted to odd juxtapositions. I don't know they're odd when I see them. But I know when I look at them afterwards, oh, well, that, that's me. I'm not sure anybody else would have put together that piece of scenery with that piece of machinery, to give an example. I love color. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, I uh, really love composition, which came very naturally to me. But... It's not composition that's necessarily apparent. I don't say, yes, hey, look at my composition. On the contrary, it's, I think, as odd as everything I do. Uh, And the movement was not that great as much from the, I stayed with the idea of a world being porous. And I've had shows in which I've explored that in a number of ways up to you if you would like to hear more about that. However, for this most recent book, I've been walking in which all of the photographs were taken during the lockdown COVID in Los Angeles, all but six, and there's 130 in the book. So I was out there most days with a mask and gloves and uh, you know, going, well, I'm, I just have to do this. And I was not documenting the city, but I was receiving the city. I was not looking for windows. I was not looking. There's a whole series of mine up in an archipelago in Norway before all this, which has an installation by the artist Dan Graham. And I read about it on the plane going there. I thought, ah, that's for me because his installations are clear and opaque glass. And I could use that as my window, which I did. So then I think of it as seeing as seeking, seeing as searching. This past year, I was not doing that. I was walking much the way I had done as I described in Mexico, 
the world came at me, I met it. So when you go out and shoot, I love what you said about seeing is searching. Well, then, yes, that was, but the difference to this past body of work was that I was not searching. I was suspended. I was in the city. I was emotionally moved, which most photographers don't talk much about, but I, I do. And the sense of the desolation of the city, the emptiness, the sense of aspirations that were dashed because so much was boarded up. And then I didn't know this until later, but after photographs that did have a sense of emptiness, I was finding traces, human traces places. And it could be something as simple as an abandoned shirt that was kind of hung um, on barbed wire, but the wire and the shirt and the colors and the shape even of the cuffs, well, someone thought of it as kind of a dance. I did not when I took the photograph. But what I loved was the sense that somebody had been here mm -hmm. and had left something, probably a homeless person where I live in Los Angeles. There are many, many, and were rather close to Skid Row, uh, homeless people. But as I said, I suddenly started to see a meeting place between myself, my eye, and not simply what was desolate, but what still said, ah, people have been here. And I found that when I drove, I don't walk everywhere by a long shot, I drove to the northern part of Los Angeles County and the southern part. So it's not a comprehensive view of the city, but it was one that came out of an emotional response to what life was giving me, showing me. Yeah. Uh, and this, so when you, the title of your book is I've Been Walking. Um, is that correct? That is extremely correct. <laughs> and, and so, uh, but so, so the, the title of your book is I've Been Walking and it, it does have some really kind of beautiful photos as you're talking about them now where you do have this, uh, I also like the juxtaposition. Honestly, it makes me look at the photos longer um, because I sort of start to read the, it's like the give and take between yeah. the two sides. And I, I liked how you talked about you know, one of your first photo experiences where, you know, this, the, the photo editor of Aperture is actually moving them around and you start to see them differently. Could you talk about maybe one of your favorite images from your book? Well, could I just go back and give credit to the book designer? My publisher is Distanz Verlag, and that was, it's based in Berlin, but they work with someone named Matthias Bayer, who's a very well-known designer based in Cologne. And he and I just got along. We just got each other. And so um, to go back, I, what I always do here, I'll show you something right now. I took photographs, I brought them home, I looked at them, I looked at them with the criterion of my, one is, is it mine, meaning is it only something I could have taken, et cetera, et cetera. And then I socked them into iPhoto, which is now photo on Mac, so that I could move things around and see what looked good next to the next. Then I printed them out and I put them, this is the new book, you can see it says new, but uh -huh. images in here and move those around. Yeah. I think for quite a while, do I have a book here and what are the photos saying to me? Uh -huh. 
I started posting them on Instagram and some people, not this group earlier, and some people said, oh, Janet, there's a book. I thought, well, that's interesting because De Stans Verlag had published a book of mine in 2016, kind of a, a big monograph, it's a beauty. And so I sent them some, this is a, it's a big book, but it's not as, I mean, the Overspilling World has a foreword by the director, Vin Vendors, who I admire greatly and had not known and had sent him work. He said, yeah, I'll write something about it. This doesn't have a lot of apparatus, this new book. Um, and I sent them to Matthias, another Matthias, Cleforth, and he said, I'll take them. And so we had this wild year, all of the photographs, except six in one year, add on, and I think it took a couple of months for production that overlapped with that year and extended it by a month. And we just had this very intensive back and forth. Well, you know, what do you think of this one? And this was with the editorial team. I don't think so. Okay, I feel the same way. Bling, off it went from the screen. And then Matthias and I started working. He would, unlike the other book, Overspilling World, um, where I really thought along with the designer, I thought this should be interesting. I'm going to say, please do what you want. Show me, I'd like to give up the control. See what you and so he came back with some of the wonderful things you're seeing and then we would keep meeting and say well I'm not so sure that could be a little larger or gee that's great or and so it was a creative process that went off the time we we talk so often about um this idea of juxtaposition both within the frame and between frames and certainly when I talk about composition and storytelling and photography so much of it is the composition of things in frame that are kind of interestingly juxtaposed and, and the magic of photography sort of catching that, that juxtaposition we talk a little less frequently but it's no less important about the juxtaposition of the images as you as you order a, a, a showing as you compose a book and you decide what's on the left and what's on the right and how they relate to each other and it it's for me so often other people see things and reveal things in those juxtapositions that you never would have. You weren't thinking when you took the picture, you're not even thinking necessarily as, as a photographer, but something else happens when those pictures are paired uh, in sort of diptychs. Um, yeah. And that sounds like it happened to you. Like there's, there's this experience that Mateus revealed stuff for you and you were excited for that experience right I mean that's but again we worked with that together and you had just asked and I'm sorry Suzanne I hadn't answered about favorite photographs <clears throat> in the book and that would be a bit hard to pick out favorites but I can tell you of course a favorite's always the thing you most recently did <laughs> it's always the case however if you were to look at the very first, I don't know if you have the book with you, the mm -hmm. first photograph, which is a uh, quite abstract brown curb, do you see it? Um, the very first one and there's sunlight and it's glinting off of water. You're drawn to reflections. I see a lot of work so, with reflections. This was one of the ones from before the lockdown. And uh, the color is not good, unfortunately. It's, it's much more vivid. 
But what I particularly liked is the way in which that single orange is ambiguous. And here, Ruben, is to answer your other question, um, one of the reasons I like reflection is because I like ambiguity. And you don't really know with a reflection, particularly the way I do it, exactly what you're looking at. Here, you do know exactly what you're looking at, but the ambiguity is in the gravity of the branch. And is that orange falling? Is it actually touching that ledge? I think of that orange as having this almost, this amazing roundness. Like in the paintings of Cezanne, you look at the apples, they're the roundest thing on the earth. Well, here you have this round, round, you don't quite know what's happening with it. Yeah, it is interesting. It has like this, I mean, the tangency of sort of like the placement of the orange where it's hitting the roof line and then it has, it feels almost flat. Like you, you can't understand the depth of field, which again goes back to Ruben's question about reflections and how there are a lot of like reflections in your work and how it plays with this idea of depth and let's see and plane. I, I like I like that the bottom part of this picture is sort of um is geometric and manufactured and the top part is a sort of organic. I like that too. Um that's very astute that's very nice. Let's see what else is on this publishers group here. Ah well they will the one on the right has a story so will they all do, but shall I tell you a little bit about them? The one on the right, the one with the sort of hole, hate to call it that, but it is in effect way of identifying it, is a reflection, but what happened during this time, near where I live, there's a building called the Caltrans building, and it has a very unusual feature. Two outside walls, have niches in them. They're rather deep. And in each niche separated, there is an old, not originally, but now old faded photograph. Hmm. And it, because it's Caltrans, it tended to be a photograph of a disaster and something which they came to the rescue. This one with each of them, there are about seven of them in the book. I found a section of it, a little place within it, a detail. And I looked at it intensely. And then I let what was behind me, reflection, enter into the picture. So you can see uh, there's a house lower left. Well, that was certainly not in the picture I was looking at. You, I don't think you can see in this one some of the others because the glass on the niches was there for a long time. People had gone by, they'd scratched it, they'd scraped it. I kept those in because they become part of the story as well. And I think I did not mention this, but this is a good time to do it. I made it a practice to not have any manipulation. I don't use Photoshop. I don't use superimposition. I don't use double exposure. The one thing I do, it's just- Ruben loves to hear this. <laughs> I really, I, there's in that book, Overspilling World, 
uh, and the essay that I wrote for it starts with my say, well, I titled it There for the Seeing. And then I explain what I mean by there for the seeing, because it's not kind of simple-minded. Oh yeah, it's right there. But I do have this sense of there's abstraction in the world. There's every, you know, there's so much that you can, can see without having to manipulate. The one thing I do do, and that is I crop. And the reason I'm mentioning it here is this is a crop. I made decisions. You see those two little, I can't even see from here or remember lower right. I think there's rectangles. I think they might've been windows. In the bottom so, right. With them, without them. I tried a million different, a million, a lot of different ways mm. to see what was really right. Um, and this is what I ended up with. But that is the story. And I would go back to the Caltrans building lots of times during the year of the lockdown because it fascinated me and there are probably oh I don't know 20 images on these walls so I had a lot to work with and I kept some. Well we do like to ask uh, all of our photographers if you could describe your work in one word and since you're a writer I feel like you are going to be particularly apt at this oh. um, but what would what would the word be? Light. Light? Light. Light. I've been on that. You said the same thing because it is the word of photography. I have a show coming up, and there's um, we've decided to call it Splendor. And Splendor is the title of a wreck of a car that I found in the streets in Mexico that is absolutely transformed by light. And so I've called the picture Splendor. Oh, I love that. Cool. I, I also see there's like lots of, you have pictures on your wall behind you. And I don't know if those are pictures by you or pictures by other artists, but I'm always interested in the photographers who have inspired you to the point that you actually own them, that you keep other people's work on your walls. Um, could you, are those by you or by other photographers? And maybe oh, well, there's so much one, someone who's really inspired you that you have up, not just at, abstractly, but who do you keep on your wall that you see all the time? Okay, the one that you can see now that's behind the, uh, whoops, can't tell which way you're moving on Zoom, behind the black with color, whatever, is something that's profoundly dear to me. It is by Sugimoto, the Japanese photographer, and it is one of his photographs of a movie theater where he places the screen in the center of the image, as you can see from here, and leaves the shutter open for 24 hours, give or take. And you get this remarkable light on the screen because images have been running all that time, but they've resolved themselves into that white light that is just to me fantastic. If you have time, I will tell you the story of how that came into my life. It's I would love to hear the story. Okay. In, you have to bear with me, it's got, but it does have a punch, a payoff, put it that way. Um, we came to CalArts in 1988 for my husband to be the president. At that point, it was virtually all about to go out of business. It was, it just didn't have enough money. By 19, let's see, what are my dates? 94, it had enough money. My husband was brilliant at 
putting it on the right track and did a lot of work with him toward that end. Um, and on January 1, we clinked our glasses and said, we're safe. January 17th, that year, two weeks and a few days later, the Northridge earthquake happened and CalArts was in the epicenter. So we woke up one morning owing in 1994 dollars, $40 million dollars and knowing it was life or death because in point of fact, students stayed that semester. My husband and his colleagues found 13 places around Los Angeles to continue in arts education because the school was red tagged. It couldn't be used, the campus, the whole big campus. So rather soon, it was January 18th, my birthday. Um, we drove out to see what had happened and the board chair met us there. And he and my husband put on hard hats because it was a bit foolhardy to even enter. The main, the main building is 500,000 square feet, humongous building. And two-ton air conditioners had slipped through the ceiling. I mean, it, it was just awful. I stood outside waiting. The board chairman came out of the building. My husband, Steve, did not. And I was lighting a slow fuse of anger. What is he doing? Is he going for his Rolodex? In point of fact, he had remembered that I had seen a Sugimoto photograph very early on in my years in, well, it was in San Francisco at the time. And I said, you know, I don't want all that many things, but if you ever, ever wanted to give me anything, it would be one of these photographs. And it had turned out that his entire office from the earthquake had fallen on top of the photograph, which, thank goodness, had been sent from New York, from Sonnabend Galleries. And he was crossing his fingers that it would have been sufficiently crated not to have been lost. Wow. Was crated. And he came out of this wrecked building with, here we go, you see it now, that photograph in his wow. arms, and it was my birthday present. I will wow. never part with it. That is such a lovely story. I I actually wasn't familiar with his work, but while you were talking, um, I did look it up because it is, they're stunning. And I read the quote of, his, of the photographer, my dream was to capture 170,000 photographs on a single frame of film. Yeah. Yes. And I, I really love that. That is such a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Of course, it goes to what was the single word? Light. Light. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, wow. lovely tie-up. Well, I think it is time we wrap it up this morning. We okay. have had such a wonderful time speaking with you, Janet. Thank you for joining us. Uh, our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco and Santa Fe. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. And please leave reviews and ratings, especially if you like us. We get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. So if you know someone who might get something from us, please send them a link. Thanks to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music. Janet, thank you for joining us this morning. And all of you for hanging out with us. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about. Until next time. <laughs>